Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan, with me as always is Gareth. Hello. Hello, and this week we're going back to the dwarf, uh, revisiting something we've already started, Red Dwarf, a classic sitcom and a personal favourite of ours. We should, we ought to remind our listeners, if they haven't, we've, we've already done a double episode on Red Dwarf series one and two. Mm-hmm. So what are we, we're, we're going to cover in this double episode, we're going to cover series three, four, five, and six, right? That's right. So my basic thinking was to Red Dwarf is so large and also so much to talk about that we wanted to break it up a bit. Series one and two was an obvious choice because there's significant changes going into series three, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then there's a big gap between six and seven. So for my money, three to six is your prime Red Dwarf years. This is the peak of the show. When we were talking about this you described it as peak red dwarf and i'm not Mm. really arguing with that but i was curious to know if you say that because that's just when you were watching it um definitely yes that is when i was watching it although probably a slightly post that uh, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I probably watched the repeats rather than the original broadcast. Well, I think we discussed this last time we talked about Red Dwarf. I had a lot of them recorded on VHS, and yeah. when I left home, you inherited them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But there is, there. I mean, this is, this is not my opinion, uh, and it's not even particularly a, a subjective opinion. Series 1 and 2 are a very different beast to, to what comes afterwards, and then there are also significant changes that go on later on. Series 3, we have new characters added in, we expand yeah. the world quite considerably and then after series six there is a bit of a gap where in many ways the show could have ended and then they yeah. draw it back and one of the writers leaves uh, so that yeah. is quite a significant watershed so I, I don't think it's just my opinion there are significant changes that occur so we we're, we're planning to revisit red dwarf once more or at least one maybe even more than once more like probably uh, twice at some more point in honest, the future yeah yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we're not just writing off post series six but for the purposes of of this podcast we're just going to be looking at what you are calling peak red dwarf yes and i apologize in advance for going on about how much i love it <laughs> well this is good because you you're normally the negative one <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned they're having it on VHS, and you know we sometimes try and talk about our own experiences of watching these things. I've watched all, however many episodes it is, 24 episodes of these four mm-hmm. series in the last couple of weeks, and it was interesting to me that some were more familiar than others. Series 6 felt less familiar, so I'm just guessing yes. that means maybe I didn't have that on video. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but certainly Series 4 and 5, I kind of knew every word of those. Yeah, so did I. I think those are the ones I've watched on video <laughs> four, yeah. 400 times, yeah. <laughs> Well, as you said, we've already covered one and two, and there's a kind of a, a big change between series two and series three. So mm. let's talk about that. Let's talk about those changes, primarily the new cast members. Mm-hmm. Let's just go down to the basics here a little bit. Some changes that occur between two and three. Rob Grant and Doug Naylor are the writers of this. We talked about them in mm. our last episode, but essentially a writing pair, known each other since childhood, worked together through sketch comedy primarily, and this was their first big sitcom thing that they got done. And it was a struggle to get it commissioned. It was an unusual mm. thing, a sci-fi comedy. It required a decent budget. But they are very hands-on. They've been right there at the beginning, and in that series one and two, we talked about how they were trying to get things changed and had to pick their battles yeah. a little bit and had to kind of just play the game and be respectful to the other creators. And we talked and about the sort of shoddy sets in series one, didn't we? 
Yeah, not shoddy, but just not Cheap. what they wanted it to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going with shoddy. Didn't come out the way they wanted it, but that's a budgetary thing apart from anything else. Anyway, from Series 3 onwards, this show is officially produced by Grant Naylor Productions, the production ah. company of Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. They are officially producers, and therefore they have a great deal more influence. They are now embedded with Paul Jackson, the producer. They're friends with Ed By, the director. Like They're in there. Their opinion means something now. And, and they have a success. This was a successful show now. It's not a global smash by any means, but it's, it's not just the this startup no one has heard of they're it. not quite Sci-fi having to comedy. prove themselves in the same way yeah yeah and uh, just for the record that it's grant nailer productions continues to make red dwarf content now it's it, the 2020 mm. was the last kind of tv relevant thing they mm. did but uh, you know they are they still control that product and they still yeah. uh, they still run that uh so we got a new set designer, uh, Mel Bibby, famously, uh, a cr- okay. so new set designer. And so to take advantage of this, they basically make a new set. They redesign the entire yeah. set as we know it. And the way they kind of justify this in world, although I don't know if it's ever officially stated, but you'll notice that when you see, when you see the characters just in their bedroom or whatever, mm. it says officers quarters above the, uh, ah, the beds so they've there. moved. Yeah. So the idea is, look, we've got this whole ship. Why are we staying in the crappiest quarters? available yeah right? makes sense and everywhere everything is just a little bit sleeker and a mm-hmm. bit more spacey rather than submarine which is what it's interesting you say that uh, the way you framed that was you don't know if they addressed it in world because what that what i infer from that is that you've read around this and found out all this information and i'm sure there are lots of people listening who are red dwarf fans who know everything about the red mm. dwarf universe all i've done is watch these television programs <laughs> and so i didn't know that i didn't notice the <laughs> officers quarters now that, that, there's nothing wrong with that you know have to explain every little thing but i think this is might be quite tricky for us to navigate our way through this review of a sitcom without looking at the wider the, the wider material that's available yeah so usually when we do an episode on a show we I, I really try and get as much info as i can sort of you know realistically find within our limited mm. time scale and make, make a real kind of last word on look here's everything you could possibly want to know about this show as a casual fan the problem with mm. red dwarf is it has a massive cult following and there are people who know everything you could possibly never want to know about the show and there's <laughs> uh, there's hundreds of hours of extras material and interviews etc etc and i do enjoy the show enough that i've delved into all that yes but just caveat them if you're a red dwarf nerd you already know more than i do so you might not get much out of this um but we'll throw our own personal opinions in there as well i suppose if that's worth anything but yeah i've i've done as much as i can but you know the the clues are there that it literally says officers quarters above all right all right like it's that's that's a that's a thing i'm not i'm not complaining it's nice they got they got an upgrade it's fine the interesting thing is about those changes between two and three is that they are largely unaddressed within the show itself and I think for me who probably came and watched this from series four onwards and then went back later years and watched series one and two and saw, saw those as the oddity if you're a fan and you're going oh a new series of World Dwarf great what the hell is this who's this character why has the mm. computer changed why are they in a different ship what's well, going on in the first episode of series three there's a text crawl there's a classic Star Wars style text yes. crawl which which just kind of folds everything in it it gets rid of Lister if you remember at the end of series two we found out that Lister was pregnant so it just dispatches yeah. that in a sentence I can't even remember yeah. what it was that, that, you don't need to worry about that anymore it resets the Crichton character who we'd met in an earlier episode so now Crichton's back on the crew and it, mm-hmm. and it also explains why we now have Hattie Hayridge 
playing Holly rather than mm. Norman Lovett. It does explain it, but it also travels past so quick as to be unreadable. It is deliberate it, joke. It, it ag- is. Against yes, that. It is rubbing your face in the fact that you don't know when these things are happening. Well, I think I paused I paused the video to, to, to read all of this. But, well, quite, but it was, yes. it, even, <laughs> even if you read it, it's very much a, ah, yeah, don't worry about all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, We're yeah, starting yeah. again now. <laughs> and it's amazing that not only did they get away with that, but it works really well. The changes they've made are really good. Yeah. Just as a broad stroke, I see Series 3 as a sort of settling in period, and that's why I think of Series 4 and 5 as the real kind of this is Red Dwarf at just firing on all cylinders. Mm. Series 3, they're, they, they're folding in some more sci-fi type ideas. They're getting yep. off the ship more often. We have yeah. Crichton added as a character. The Holly change probably doesn't make a huge difference in terms of overall kind of content or structure, but it just gives a slightly different feel to that character. But with Crichton coming in, Crichton kind of takes that role of expositor, is the one who yes. will explain all the so science Holly is things. less needed. Yeah, Holly is less needed, which is why, ultimately, they ditch Holly, basically. We'll, yeah. we'll come to that a bit later. But, we will. Uh, let's talk about the new actors who brought in, shall we? Well, let's talk about Holly first, then. So, Hattie Hayridge, we'd already seen in one episode in Series 2. Yeah, so the there's an episode in series two where they go to an alternate version of them and it's all the sort of female versions and so mm-hmm. there is a female Holly and Hattie Hayridge was brought in Hattie Hayridge like Norman Lovett was a stand-up comedian not an actor and she was brought in be- pretty much because people said oh you're really like Norman Lovett that you've got a very similar deadpan style of, of comedy mm-hmm. and so that was an easy choice for them you ever seen any Hattie Hayridge stand-up not really like the odd clip but she's not like a hugely famous stand-up comedian <laughs> of, of great Stop. reputation everyone's got their own opinions but she's not very good so i'd really like to go to disneyland this year you know the nice bits not the touristy bits (laughs) (laughs) yes that's your opinion that's my opinion no no i listen i'm not trying to be unkind it is not to my taste but but it is that very kind of deadpan confused deer in headlights type performance yeah yeah. which is quite what norman lovett was frankly (laughs) That makes sense. And she's not an actor, really. She's done the odd bit of thing. I saw in an episode of Jonathan Creek recently, I was watching some of that, in which she plays a stand-up comedian. I've genuinely never seen her in anything else. I I went through IMDb to have a look, looked at all her credits, and there's nothing else that I can remember seeing her in. Yeah, she's not really an actor. Having said that, does a great job here. I I think she does a lovely line in kind of eye acting. She's fine. That is quite a difficult thing to do, like express with no... I did this once, actually. I did a play where I was playing a a headless, a bodiless head, basically. I won't go into the details. But I can say for her that, like, expressing yourself with just your face is uh, more difficult than you would think. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. So, Hattie Herridge replaces Norman Lovett. What about the Mm -hmm. character of Holly? We obviously see Holly retreating. We see the character becoming smaller and smaller with the arrival of Crichton. And also, I think think the cat becomes a more integral part of the crew as well as as, as time progresses. But yeah, Holly, not vanishes, but Holly diminishes yeah yeah and ultimately vanishes yeah by series six there's that one episode white hole where her iq increases exponentially but mm. she's only got a certain amount of time to live and she's integral to that episode 
and there's yeah. some acting involved there. But th- that really is the exception to the rule. There's not much else. But th- one of the notes I wrote down is, how the hell do you develop this character? Like, there's not a lot that you can do with it. Yeah, exactly. You can't, can you, really? Yeah. And, the, and that was what the writers felt. They just sort of realised they were trying their best to put a couple of good lines in for her, failing to do it. And then they, so they just kind of went, you know what? Let's just cut that character out. Let's just mm. knock that on the head. And you can understand that. Um, I'm sure she would have kept turning up and had a paycheck and all that. But she, she'd turn up to rehearsal and she's got three lines. She just sits there mm. and wait and then does a line. And, and that was part of the problem with Norman Lovett, why he left ultimately. Yeah. Whether he was pushed or, or jumped <laughs> so slightly you for debate. More, but, more but yeah he was involved. saying like well why don't I just why am I at rehearsals I can just turn up for recording and then what after you know it'd be a lot less drain on my time and they weren't they weren't going to have that so hmm. so it's interesting isn't it we said we've got this extra character Crichton but you also mentioned earlier that the, the universe expands insofar as they're off the ship a lot more mm-hmm. you know considering that we're supposed this drama is supposed to be about the last man he meets a hell of a lot of people <laughs> and characters yes you know, in his adventures yeah, and to that end, we get introduced in Series 3, Starbug, one of their, mm. their little ship that takes them off the Red Dwarf, which yeah. we had Blue Midget before. Yeah, what happened to Blue Midget? I don't think that was explained in the shows, but I'm sure you've read something. The, the basic feeling was that it was a bit small and crap inside the crew kind of cockpit bit. Plus, it was so small that they, they could fit three people in there, not four. Uh-huh. And so they just wanted a bigger ship, a, a bigger a bigger thing. And it meant they got an excuse to do a load more model shots, which was basically one of the most successful mm-hmm. aspects of the first series. Yeah, yeah. So they were very happy with that. And content used to be so. I did We did talk about this last time, so I won't go on about it. But the model work in this is phenomenal. It's just so good. All the spaceship stuff is. And like when they switch to CGI in later years, it's so crap. (laughs) It really is crap. I haven't watched that. So interesting. So yeah, it's, I'm not a big uh, expert in this sort of stuff, but you can just as a layman, it's just amazing stuff. And so that, that is Starbug. They designed that. Uh, the model designers designed Starbug, which means the set designers then had to work from (laughs) that inwards, which, and they created a, a circular cockpit, which is impossible to do on a set. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so straight away it was a pain, <laughs> but there you go. They figured it out. It gives them a bit more space in there. Again, it's just these changes they're making. They've just expanded it a little bit more budget. Yeah, the plot device, Starbug gives you the, it's the away team, isn't it? It gives you, it gives you the ability to go down onto the planet and meet the locals. Yeah, exactly. Or travel through time and space and go back to Earth we'll and to all that. sorts of things they do, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. Well, let's talk. Let's go back to, we were talking about new characters. So, mm-hmm. Robert Llewellyn as Crichton. Now, obviously, yeah. we saw Crichton in uh, Series 2, just in one episode, and then he sort of literally rode off into the sunset. Different actor, it was David Ross uh, in that sort of one-off appearance. Now we've got Robert Llewellyn, who famously is now Crichton. Why Robert Llewellyn and not David Ross? I, I think they asked the original actor and he wasn't available or, or something along those lines. I don't think there was a particular great intent to not use him. But he was brought in for a single episode thing. Yeah. The, the, that was not part of the plan. So when they redeveloped the character, maybe they were like, okay, well, let's open this up and see see what we can get. Yeah. Again, it's explained in that opening text crawl that he was destroyed in a kind of uh, accident and Lister had to rebuild him. And so that's why he looks different and his personality is different. <laughs> so... <laughs> Always the same when you do a bit of DIY, isn't it? <laughs> what was Robert Llewellyn's background then before Crichton? He was pretty well established on the sort of fringe comedy circuit. He, mm. uh, I mean, he actually trained as a shoemaker before he got into the, uh, really? the world of showbiz. Yeah, just we, we have man. not had that before. <laughs> I know that's an unusual <laughs> one. Can, can I just can I just get some credit for not saying cobblers? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
<laughs> so yeah, he worked through the eighties. He was in a fringe comedy. I think there was a theatre troupe called the Joeys. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you can go back far enough in your head to remember that, but they were sort of on that, that circuit cabaret circuit. They weren't like hugely famous. Or I don't think I knew him before Red Dwarf. And he wrote a lot of their material, and he wrote novels and all. Yeah, he's he's always been on the creative side of it, not just yeah. an actor. Uh, but here's a, a an important part of that in the eighties. He wrote and performed a one man show that was essentially about a robot that is becoming more human over the course of the show. Okay, and this was seen by Paul Jackson, the ah. producer of Red Dwarf, and that is why he got a phone call saying, "Do you would like to come and audition for play a robot?" <laughs> That's inter- How did I not know that? That's really interesting. Yeah. So that was just a, a sort of fringe comedy one man show that he was producing on his own. Yeah. Wow. But back in the 80s when that was kind of, um, it wasn't yeah. everyone and their grandma making one-man shows, you know, it was, it was you know, he had to be a bit more of a, someone like Paul Jackson might actually come and see it. So he actually wrote and co-starred in a, in a sitcom in 1987 called The Corner House, which I can't, I haven't found any footage of, but it's about, it's about a cafe run by gay men. And this is the 80s, you know, so that's, that's pretty right on. But it was Channel 4. Obviously. Like, I, I, I looked at his IMDb and I looked up a couple of things. He was in an episode of Colin Sandwich oh, um, in okay. a very kind of blink and you'll miss it non-comedy role. He's in an episode of Birds of a Feather as a conservative ca- candidate for, for election. An episode of Bottom. Stuff like this that kind of came around. Oh, I do remember him in the episode of Bottom with a Falklands yeah. veteran. Yes. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I do remember that. Was that before Red Dwarf then? No, no. This stuff's all after. So his ah, okay. first... His first episodes of Red Dwarf for 1989. And so all this yeah. stuff is like suddenly like, oh, come and do this. Come and have an sh- yeah, episode yeah, yeah. of this. But that is kind of more here, just come and do one little guest appearance in mm. this than any of the other actors are doing. I mean, Chris Barry did it before Red Dwarf. <laughs> yeah. But may I say as politely as possible, I don't find him to be a very good actor. Uh, everything I've seen mm. him in, he's kind of like, oh, look, it's sort of Crichton y vibes. <laughs> or like, he's, I, it's just Robert Llewellyn. It's like he's a performer. He's not acting, he's, he's performing. It, it, do you understand the distinction I'm making? You know, he's yeah. kind of doing a, a performance. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously identified with the Crichton role now, and I think he does a damn fine job. But it's, it's not like whenever you see him, you go, oh, that's Crichton. You mm-hmm. go, oh, that's Robert Llewellyn. <laughs> and it's yeah. just, I don't know. He's, he's a very stagey performer, I guess. But the fact that he's got this very big expressive face works yeah. perfectly for Crichton because he's covered in latex. He's covered in this mm. mask. And so being able to overexpress or yeah. perhaps not being able to stop yourself overexpressing really works to his advantage. I think it's just one of those cases of finding the great, the right actor for the right part. As we talked about with all these guys in Red Dwarf, none of them are actors. I mean, Chris Barry sure. perhaps, but sure. the rest of them were, you know, performers. They were performers. Well, before we talk about the character, let's, the, the other, the only other thing I know Robert Llewellyn is that he, back in the early days of podcasts, he was doing a podcast where he was, he was in his electric car before they were cool mm. and he would interview celebrities about, about them, but also about, yeah. you know, look at my electric car and it great. This is before Jerry Seinfeld did comedians in car cars yeah. getting coffee, but it was a similar format, really. But but what I what I always thought about that was it was it was in the early days of podcasting, and it was it, it sort of demonstrated a, an entrepreneurship, like a get up and go of using his his, his friends and bringing people mm-hmm. in, but creating something, creating a product. And like the guy writes novels and stuff like that, you know, he's he's a very creative person. I think. Mm. He's a big, yeah, electric car proponent. That's his thing now. He pretty much just yeah. says, like, we need to go electric or we're all going to die. Yeah. Which, you know, it's fair. 
Well, shall we focus on the character then? So we talked about Robert Llewellyn. So Crichton, as we, as you said, the uh, the text crawl at the start of series three explains that it's it's an almost a reset character. Mm-hmm. So how do we how are we introduced to him in series three? With very little fanfare, he's just mm. there and he's, he's interacting there. with the crew, and they all know him and they're familiar with him. We yeah. we do not do a hey. Welcome back to the ship. And that's unusual. I mean, even if you are going to bring in a new character and you kind of want to like, oh, let's not worry about where he came from. Let's just bring him in. To not introduce him as a character, really, it's, I think it's brave, shall I say? <laughs> is it brave to do that? As a, as a, if you're a viewer and you're suddenly watching this, you're like, what, what's going on? Who is this? Yeah. But I think that's the point about the, the, the throwaway text crawl of just like, yeah, this is it. Come on, get on with it. Get on board. I will say for, for Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, like the, they take some pretty big swings between series. They are not messing about. They are prepared to go big on it. And I think it's amazing how well that integrates into this. And I think it's because our characters are always, I was going to say our characters are always there and the same, but they're not. The characters change quite significantly as well, but it feels like in a very mm. realistic and natural way. Uh, like the cat, for example. The cat becomes more integrated with the crew, but that's because he's suddenly interacting with them. He's been on his own mm. for so long and he's becoming a bit more human-ish, yes. less cat-like. And I think it works really well. It's a great development of that character, but also yeah. it makes him a better character. You can do more with him and you can integrate mm. him more. He was very one-dimensional in the first couple of series. Yeah, yeah. And Rimmer becomes less of a dick, but he's still annoying in his own way, but yeah. they just start to tailor it. And it really feels like, and I, from what I've heard, from what people have said, the right of just kind of putting more and more of the actors into the characters, writing yes. for the actors, yes. which is, we've seen this before. This seems to be a very good recipe to actually getting mm. the best performances out of people. The example I'm thinking of is the Ginger Tosser in Game On, who, <laughs> who was never called a Ginger Tosser in Series 1 because they didn't cast him when they wrote the script. <laughs> very cruel example. <laughs> so Robert Llewellyn as Crichton for example even over the course of series 3 that character is developing because the actor is trying to work out how to do mm. the voice how to do yeah. the walk <laughs> and you can tell he's not he hasn't they haven't quite figured out what how would a droid act it's funny you should say that because I've one of my notes here I've written Crichton first note what's with the accent <laughs> where is where is he supposed to be from how, how has he been programmed mm. what's with the what's with the it's, it's this sort of mid-atlantic type dro- I, I can't quite i can't even describe it oh don't be distressed sir i've lived a long and relatively interesting life the only truly terrible thing is that as my adopted owner you have to die with me <laughs> Well, Robert Llewellyn talks about this and how they just, they, they had like 80 voices and 60 different funny walks and like just tried different combinations of them until they yeah. found something that worked. What he's doing with the accent was his attempt at Canadian. Um, oh, okay. And then just like how that came out was not really Canadian, but that's what it is. <laughs> that's good. I'm reminded of when I, when I, when my son was uh, small, I read all the Harry Potter books to him and <laughs> I tried to do different voices for all the characters. And it's really difficult. There's a lot of characters. It's difficult to remember yeah. who's who. So I was doing impressions of like politicians and celebrities <laughs> that he didn't know so it didn't matter how bad the impression was as long as i knew this is willie whitelaw and it was really white it was a bad willie whitelaw every time <laughs> can you imagine chris barry reading to his kids oh my god <laughs> doing ronald reagan <laughs> don't do the voices <laughs> 
you do see that, and it does settle down by the time we get to series four. But they're obviously trying to figure that out as they go along, and 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 also certainly in the early days, but even later on, it just sounds like the makeup job for that was just a total nightmare. Yeah, when they were first doing it, it took hours and hours, and he would be in the chair, wake up chair at five o'clock in the morning, four hours before the rest of the cast mm. turned up. Craig Charles and Danny Don Jules are still out drinking when he's getting up to go to to studio, oh, you know. So um, they were living very different lifestyles. They they kind of progressively got that better. Every series, it's a new it's a new suit, it's a new outfit, and a new mask, mm. and they refine it and refine it to make it more and more comfortable and quicker to get on. So by by the end, like they can put a full mask on him and then kind of paint out the eyes and whatever it takes an hour and the suit you know at first he couldn't even sit down in it because it was too stiff or if he tried to move the velcro would pop and he would be out of it so all this sort of stuff they just slowly got better and better at it but it does sound like it's very difficult and uncomfortable experience in fact i think it's series four they move from the manchester studios down to shepparton we'll talk about that a little bit later but he he took a flat in shepparton because he had to be there so early like traveling the less he yeah, could travel, the better, you know. So it was even like down to that that element. It sounds like a miserable um, experience, to be perfectly honest with you. And he takes he's obviously taken it with grace for thirty years. So that's, well, can that's we how he's doing. can we talk about the character development of Crichton then? Mm-hmm. Because you know he obviously changes over the over the course of the, these four series. In fact, in the final episode, they find out in inverted commas that Lister is a, a mechanoid, and it turns out he's not. But for a little while, they think that Lister is a mechanoid. And Crichton has this moment of really being able to lord it over him because he's no longer the lowest of the low. And he's quite nasty to who he <laughs> thinks he's now his inferior. That really clanged with me. That didn't. That seemed yeah. out of character. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's for the sake of a five minutes of gags, isn't it? But yeah, I know what you mean. Perhaps we'll address this in our next episode because they do, as going into the later series, he changes even more. But... I think for the most part, his development over these few series is really good. Like, Lister is encouraging him to break his programming, become more human. We have a whole episode where he becomes human, and then he can't kind of handle that. It's too much for him. And the way he develops, and we'll see in in the episode The Inquisitor, the fact that he is capable of sort of free will and individual thought means he is therefore culpable for his actions. And Mm -hmm. that comes with consequences. And they seem to go both ways on that. They'll use it for I, he has to obey this order or you know that that means he's going to side on this but then he will yeah. kind of go against someone sometimes it does feel inconsistent to. i tell you what let's um you've mentioned the inquisitor that is going to be our episode but mm. we're not going to get to it just yet uh, we, what i would like to do is perhaps do a sort of big picture overview of the four series three four five and six and yeah. and and just talk about those changes so why don't we why don't we do that a sort of five or ten minutes leap through those four series all right well let's talk a bit more about series three and the other things that come in here. We have new costume designer as well, and the costumes, again, get significantly more sophisticated, let's say. The cat is the obvious example of this, but it goes for everyone, and that continues to change throughout the series as well. They're not in these kind of boiler suits chic that they... And that was the original plan, you know, that was what they asked for. We wanted it to be feel yeah. like a submarine, and it's like alien. Like it's It was alien, world. not Star yeah. Wars, not Star Trek, yeah. yeah. I, I actually wrote wrote down, this is like Star Trek. He has a different uniform every series. Rimmer has a different uniform every series, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is like the, the Star Trek movies. But with, with Rimmer, it's easy. He's a hologram. It's just like, oh, do you know what? I fancy red. Oh, I, like, mm-hmm. I want a blue suit now. 
The cat obviously has loads of different outfits, but it is rather than like five different colors of the same 70s suit. It's now like there are kind of a whole range of outfits. They have a lot of fun with that. And Lister's clothes suddenly have personality as well. And it, you know, it feels like he's always got this sort of post-punk chic, you know, he's wearing a leather jacket and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But it feels like it's got personality. And I think that's the important thing. What about one thing that I, one note that I've made here is about the opening credits, which are different every time and it really is just a sort of highlights reel of shots from that series yes with a new music as well as sort of a hardcore mm-hmm. electric guitar kind of version of the theme Yeah, a lot more dynamic. If we, we talked about in the first two series that very, very slow, slow 2001 kind of vibe, which was, again, mm. a deliberate choice. And then I guess they thought, no, that's it's not mo- It's more comedy than sci-fi anymore. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And perhaps that's because they felt the sci-fi was doing the job on the screen now. They didn't have to try and sell it in the, in the credits. Yeah, I guess so. And an- another thing they change in series three, and this comes from the novels. So bear in mind they wrote a couple of novels in between like the first couple of series. Mm. And in that, they expanded the world and the, brought in some new ideas and all that sort of thing. And then, so when they did all these changes in series three, they kind of meshed the two and kind of, mm. they, it's not like they went to the book continuity, but they just brought in some other things like Crichton. And one of those is that the ship, Red Dwarf ship, is now much bigger than it was. Okay. Uh, perhaps not physically, but certainly in its concept. Because we hear in series one, is it? Um, there are 169 members of crew on that ship. Yeah, Lister says so specifically. And now there are 1,169 uh, members of crew. Uh, the other major change, although we don't address it very directly, but now instead of Kachansky being a woman that he had a crush on, that Lister had a crush on and has always been his dream woman, now yeah. they had a relationship and she split up with him. They had a brief That's thing. Perfect. Things like that, that they... They, they put that stuff in because they were expanding the world in the novels. It gave them more to work with. And then they went, oh, that, that informs the character quite nicely. Let's do more with yeah. that. Let's put more of that in. And that will come back to play later on, although we don't see that much of it here. Uh, yeah. But it is mentioned every now and then. And so there are these background changes. And th- there is there is a bigger world behind what we're seeing on screen. And it sort of makes yeah. sense. Even when the continuity is fudged with, we all understand it. We know what's canon and all that sort of stuff. So that's the sort of thing that the sci-fi nerds really like to get a hold of. And that's how you you get cult status, right? Yeah, the backstory. Yeah, the the, the depth. The other sort of change, more thematically than anything, is that series one and two are much more sitcom-y. They're sitcom plots characters Mm -hmm. they just happen to be on a spaceship and that means they've got some sci-fi elements going Mm on but it's very sitcom-y and we don't really get that anymore it becomes much more of sci-fi concepts and they're off on different worlds the end of series three last day where Crichton is going to be replaced by a different uh droid that's one that the one that's a bit more of a sitcom-y script it's all kind of within that world there it's just them hanging out they're getting drunk and they're doing this blah 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 there's jeopardy and they resolve it but it's all it's all within the ship it's all within our usual set yes but more and more we we start to go off the ship meet new characters get a new Mm -hmm. a new like monster of the week kind of vibe there is an element of that isn't there a bit like old star trek yeah yeah and I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I think they come up with enough original ideas, and I and that's was one another one of the strengths of Rudwolf, the absolute glut of original sci-fi concepts um, yeah. that they managed to pull in here. I agree, and that's obviously down to the writers, Rob Grant, Doug Naylor. 
but also having the trust of the other creatives to be able to pull them off. And so mm-hmm. many times in these things where they're making that, and the cast particularly are going, so why am I doing this? What does if hang on, if we traveled back in time, would this connect to that? What? And they're like, look, don't worry about it. Just trust, trust that it works. And we'll like, and like in backwards, for example, is where yeah, everything's running backwards. The logistics of that, the ergonomics yeah. of filming that, you just have to trust that someone has worked it out properly. <laughs> and yeah. the director, you know, the director Ed by ha- trying to figure out, okay, well, if this was backwards, would it connect to that? If you're trying to do continuity in yes, your yeah, head. Of course. Uh, but it's backwards and you're filming it the wrong way around. It is very complicated and you just, there's a certain level of trust that they've built up. That it- I think it's the same, the same as a viewer though. I remember at the time watching that episode and like trying to pick holes in and think, well, this doesn't make sense. That couldn't, and then what happens after? And I think you've just got to let that go and enjoy it. I think if you get close enough, it doesn't make sense, but that's, yeah. you know, yeah, you yeah. have to just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. So just jump to series four, a big change here came that they moved from the studios in Manchester down to Shepparton. Uh, so in Manchester, they were on a TV set. You know, you put up the set for your filming and you take it down and you go and rehearse in, in a, an office building in Acton, right? So in Shepparton, they build the set and it stays there for eight weeks. They can rehearse on set. Okay. And that means they can build more. They've got more space. They've got more things. You know, they can build more stuff. And so that is a, quite a significant change. Plus all the cast lived in London anyway, so it's a bit easier for them yeah. to yeah, travel. you saying they were all traveling twice a week. Yeah. And they just have better facilities and all that sort of stuff. So that's a change that you, we don't necessarily see on screen, but it makes a difference to perhaps how ambitious they can be. And I, I, I heard, I think it was Doug Naylor talking about this. He said that series by Series 4, they had a budget of 250000 thousand pounds per episode now put that into context for us well exactly because that sounds like a lot now (laughs) and this is 1990 or whatever this was made Mm -hmm. so that feels like a lot of money doesn't it but in the context of what he was saying it was like you know for what we're doing that's not that much really i think that's just what tv costs (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) that sounds like a hell of a lot of money uh, like a million and a half for this series even a sci-fi series like this but that's what it costs yeah and the bbc had that kind of money in those days i don't think it does anymore i think their peak audiences for red dwarf on bbc2 with nine million which is the most it's the it's like the record for a sitcom on Mm. bbc2 yeah and it was always a bbc2 show this is a half-remembered story about robert llewellyn probably on one of those podcasts telling a a story with 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 some level of bitterness about being invited to the british comedy awards and they weren't on the main bbc table like with the blackadder people they were sort of off in the corner and considered the poor cousins and they i think they are they were a little bit chippy and a little bit resentful about that (laughs) i get that it was a huge success. Exactly. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And that was what he was saying. He was saying, you know, that would be all one good if we were an embarrassing failure, but we were a massive success. But that's it. Like like I'm saying, they're getting 9 million viewers and it's got a cult following that 30 years later is still active. Mm. But you don't recognize that in 1992, do you? It's this weird, like, sci-fi sitcom sure. that the students watch. As opposed to, say, One Foot in the Grave that's getting, like, 16 million on BBC One Saturday evening or whatever. Yeah. That's the difference, isn't it? Success is relative. So, Series 5 was interesting because Ed By, who had directed the whole show up until that point and had developed mm. a very strong relationship with all the people involved, it was a bit of a family kind of vibe. Yeah. He wasn't available. And so they brought in a new director, Juliet May. Right. Do you recognise the name? Uh, I don't think I do, but you're going to tell me that we've talked about her 12 or 13 times before. <laughs> we certainly have. She. This was fairly early in her career, but she went on to lots of things. 
specifically Miranda. She directed most of them. Ah, okay. Right. So we talked about her at that time. But this was more, uh, much earlier on in her career. She was brought in and basically didn't fit in at all for whatever reason. Didn't like, didn't mesh with the crew, didn't understand any of the sci-fi concepts. So she was sort of blowing in the wind with that one. And everyone lost faith in her quite quickly from the sounds of it. And basically they kicked her out. Okay. I've seen her interviewed about this like years hence and there doesn't seem to be any great bitterness about it. It was just like, yeah, it didn't fit. This was not a good fit and we we weren't connecting. And so Rob Grant and Doug Naylor basically took over the directing. They were directing themselves? Yes. Which uh, they were not experienced directors by any means and have not gone on to be particularly (laughs) great directors either. So, but it was much more of a like, look, you know the material and you're working with a crew who you've worked with for years. Just tell the camera guy what you want to see and they'll figure it out. (laughs) <laughs> but what we need someone who understands mm. the material like at the heart of it and can work with the actors so I think it was more of a directing by necessity rather than any yep. great desire and they didn't carry on doing it for series 6 they brought in Andy Diemini who's a pretty well established director who'd worked on Spitting Image so that's how they knew him do you think what difference do you think that made on screen? Watching it, I don't see it. There's nothing that jumps out of me going, oh, this is a different vibe. I I didn't know any of that, but I wasn't aware of any significant difference. I'll tell you where I think there's more of a difference in the editing. Uh, And that is not to say that we see the difference on screen, but Red Dwarf is very tightly edited. Uh, If you watch outtakes, you know, on the DVD, there's all sorts of extras, outtakes and deleted scenes and stuff. So they're kind of not, they're not processed. They're just sort of as they were recorded. And you, it feels a lot slower paced and gappy and and all this sort of stuff because by the time they get it finished they they edit it right down they overwrite it so they have to cut as much kind of stuff out as they can so the like the lines are boom 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 the punch lines are hitting there's a laugh boom and so it's very it's very tightly done and it's really well done and it, it feels like the writers and doug Naylor particularly he was all he was the one in the edit room making that happen okay and so i think that's that's the influence that carries right through. That's why it doesn't yes. feel like there's any great difference there. Now, Series 6 has this sort of ongoing plot thread, doesn't it? Where they, they've sort of lost Red Dwarf, which mm-hmm. is set up at the start of the episode. So we're now on Starbug. Yeah. Right? but And, and I, I... Why? Again, yeah. It's just a swing. It's just like, okay, let's shake things up a bit. I think that's yeah. the main process. They were getting rid of Holly, and that kind of gave them a very organic way of doing that. Okay. Although I don't know which came first, you know. But it means your characters are trapped together in a small space, mm-hmm. uh, much smaller even. They're, yeah. they're constantly on the move. It's, yeah, it's very much like, okay, what are we going to come across this week? And so it means you're not going to be doing anything within your little world. You've got to get out of it. And I think it was just a way to force themselves to think outside the box. Every single, I'm looking at the, the episode titles and every single one of these episodes in series six, they're, they're off the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're on another world doing other things. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but I, I don't, they didn't need to be off Red Dwarf for that to happen. But are you saying that if they had had the security of Red Dwarf, the writers, I mean, not the characters, they might have been tempted to play it safe and have more sitcom episodes? I think so. I think I, that's my read on it is they genuinely sort of sat down and said, like, what can we do to keep this fresh? Let's lose the ship. But having said that, like, the, there's the famous story that the very last episode of series six, mm. they, they were writing it the week of recording. They were rewriting. They were putting things together to the point where in the actual recording of series six, the actors are looking at auto cues on the set that are hidden around the set and they're reading all the lines because they were not given the lines wow. until literally that day. Why? Well, that, that, see, we've heard about that before. 
was it Johnny Spate who was writing yeah. up to the last minute because there was some topical elements, but also because yeah. he, he liked to drink? <laughs> yeah. So why, why, why is that with Red Dwarf? Why are we getting such last minute changes? One of the extras, the DVD extras, is Doug Naylor really talking about this in quite a lot of detail. And he says, we are not going to give you a script unless it's right. We are not going to give you a mm. subpar script. And he said, the long term thing of it, if we get it together right the last minute and that episode is a good episode and, and you all hate us getting there, that is better than <laughs> us doing a subpar episode and everyone's happy. And and they really just, uh, yeah, as he says it, hold their nerve and they're not going to give you a script until it's right. Which, yeah, I, that they were just a bit behind on this series, but that is perhaps, you know, you're trying to come up with those original ideas. They weren't going to half-arse it. They wanted to good solid ideas and how they would work mm. but it makes life difficult for everybody else <laughs> very difficult in fact before we get on to our selected episode just one other that i wanted to talk about briefly which is series three episode two marooned which is the mm-hmm. bottle episode so yes. apart from topping and tailing it we've just got lister and rimmer together they're marooned on an ice planet and it's just this two-hander i would describe it as a classic red dwarf episode it's yeah. one of my favorites we have, we've talked in the past about bottle episodes, and I think your opinion is it's when they've run out of money, that's what they do. Do you think that's the case <laughs> yeah. here, or was this a genuine attempt at character development? There, may, there might have been an idea of, like, do us a really simple one so we can use the money somewhere else, you know? Like, let's, mm. let's, let's do mm. something simple. I mean, this is an expertly written piece between... And, and you know, f- the cat and kind of cry and get a little bit kind of forgotten about. But it's it's really that Lister and Rimmer relationship. It's it's beautifully written. Ed Bai makes a very bold decision to sh- shoot it in a, an unusual way. Mm. Basically, the whole thing is handheld. And that does give it a slightly different vibe. I don't think it always works. There's some bits that are a bit dodgy, but I I, I appreciate the, the bold manoeuvre to do it. Yeah. Doing something different. I do think that was part of what they were doing. Like, what can we do that is going to mm. challenge? Challenges. What can we do that's different? I'm a Red Dwarf fan, as in I watched it and loved it at the time. I'm not a Red Dwarf fan, as in part of that fan community. Yeah. I wonder, what are the classic episodes? Are there are there sort of fan favourites in this era? Yeah, definitely. Back to Reality is a, is a clear favourite, certainly. Um, oh, really? That's the one where they kind of wake up and realise they're in a computer game. Mm-hmm. Um, although, obviously, it turns out they're not. That was several years before The Matrix, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. And I, I think the episodes that people really like are the ones where they step out and you do get them playing these different characters. You get Dwayne Dibley, you get Ace Rimmer or, or something like that. But anything that's kind of messing with these established characters and it gives them a chance to play around and, and the actors really step up to that. The actors always deliver. Chris Barry as Ace is just phenomenal. It's just like well, he was the okay. character he was born to play. All right. <laughs> so here's the thing. These are these are my least favourite episodes. Again, you know, I said this with affection. I, lo- I love the characters. And that's part of the reason why I don't like these uh, mutations of the characters, if you, if you see what I mean. Back to reality is it, I hated that episode. Ooh. It's like it negates everything. Saying we're ne- we've, we've made five series of this and actually it was all bullshit. Actually, it was all a dream. It's like it's like Bobby Ewing waking up in the shower. The last series was all a dream. It's a fantastic concept. And again, it's it's one of those examples of Red Dwarf dealing with these things well. But in terms of these characters that I knew and loved, I didn't like the idea that it was all a game. But that's the whole point, isn't it? Because it, within the show, that the dream, it all turned out to be a dream, is the dream. You know, that's... If they had actually ended the show that way, it would be... I understand. ...different. The whole point is that 
these characters suddenly realize they're not what they thought they were. They're annoyed by it. That's the whole point. And it throws them into despair. With Ace, Ace Rimmer, I kind of, you know, that was quite a funny character. But then and there's in series six, episode four, Emo Hawk, that's when we get Ace Rimmer back. And yeah. th- this feels to me like when Red Dwarf jumped the shark. Not so much the return of Ace Rimmer, but the return of my least favourite character (laughs) in the entire Red Dwarf universe, which is Dwayne Dibley. I hate that character. (laughs) It's I know I I get the idea, it's the anti-cat. I understand that. But it's just a dreadful character, and it, it feels to me like a real insult to the character of Cat. I don't agree with that at all. I I think, you know, those two characters are both established in other episodes in which it's a bit of, you know, it's a fun way of inverting the characters, you know, and it's like, I, okay, I could live with Dwayne having... Dibley in that first episode when, when we see him back to reality. But that episode, that episode, Emo Hawk, we get the return of Ace Rimmer, we get the return of Dwayne Dibley. And we, the, the, the monster of the week is, we've had that before as well. It's the polymorph. Yeah. It felt yeah. to me like a, we've run out of ideas. Let's just do a greatest hits show. I know what you mean, and I agree to an extent. I think the show is sort of fun and, and inventive enough that it's okay. But bringing Ace back, bringing Dwayne Dibley back as a little guest thing, I think that's, you know, that's fine. The the fact that they're using the same concept, I, I understand. And I mm. think if, it, if that was it, it would be fine. The fact that we, we have a whole Ace arc coming up later on that we're not going to be dealing with in this episode, but, you know, later on. Yeah, see, I don't know about that. <laughs> Dwayne Dibley comes back several times. Oh, I think, God. which is why, you know, series six for me is the end of kind of good Red Dwarf. Not, not good, but, you know, peak Red Dwarf. Because the later years, they do start playing into that fandom. They do start playing yeah. into that, you know, giving the people the... Yeah, the, and I, the I imagine things. that there are a lot of people out there who, who love those characters. That I, I guess that is a sort of fan favourite. But to me, it's... I like these characters. I've come to know them and love them. And even Rimmer, to some extent, you love to hate him. And I just don't like these... Well, mutations, that's the word. Yeah, okay. I understand. I think when you you break out for a bit of fun, I think that's that's all right. And and they have so they have so many alternate versions of them, particularly mm. in this this mm. era. We have the highs and lows in that episode where that we yeah. get the good and the bad versions and they're obviously having a lot of um well the writers are having a lot of fun with that. From what the actors say, the the experiences were pretty dreadful <laughs> filming that uh, and the costumes and whatever. We get future selves coming to visit them, don't we? We get older versions of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. All, loads and loads of alternate versions. And, you know, they did this in the earlier episodes as well, but it really gives the actors a lot of room to play. So, I, I mean, I like all that stuff, and it keeps it fresh, it keeps it... Yeah, keeps I don't it know why I've taken against it, but certainly the return of Dwayne Dubley was was a moment for me where I sort of threw my hands in the air and went, oh, for God's sake. It's it, I, it's a bit fan service I, I understand. Yes, um, yes. But we have a bit of fun with it, and that's fine. I, it's all right. People like different things and that's okay anything else on series six before we before we move on to our episode actually yes because there is a real significant change that happens in series six which i think has a much less of an effect than you would expect and that is that rimmer gets a hard light drive basically a hologram he can now interact with things and touch things and that happens in episode two of series six it's remarkable how little it changes his character and we've seen him in previous episodes well in in series three in body swap he, he takes over Lister's body and he goes mad because mm. he can feel all these sensations again. We don't get any of that. And we've, we've done that. So they don't play with that. But even within the general vibe, you don't suddenly go, Oh, look, Rimmer is kind of touching things and interacting with things. Oh, Rimmer's getting s- smashed with food all over his face anymore. You never think, Oh, yeah, Rimmer can't touch stuff. I think you'd forget I, about I, that. I, yeah. I've forgotten. Yeah. Well, I, he it's, doesn't. It's, it's episode two of series six, Legion, where, where they meet the, the Gestalt and, uh, you know, he gives him this hard light drive. 
and it's a thing in the moment. He's like, oh my God, I can eat, you know, I can eat this food. Great. But then that's it. It's never alluded to again. But without going back and watching the later episodes, is he, is he, he's touching things now, is he? Yeah. And he can be more interact. He's, he's interacting with the panels and stuff, but it's amazing how little you notice that he doesn't interact with things, but they were very strict about that. You know, they don't yeah. cheat, but then you do get Rimmerworld or, or Terraform mm-hmm. where he is flesh. He is kind of yes. able to touch stuff. And, and I think they break out of that normal world so often it becomes less obvious. Whereas in series one and two, where he's having to get the scutters to try and do things for him. And, yeah. and Yes, they yes. really play into it. Yeah, I just think like they could have done a lot more with that. Actually, I kind of I guess it pays off later on when he is flesh again. But yeah, it was one of those changes they made just so they can like uh, let's let's give us more options so we can do stuff with Rimmer. Let's just give him a hard light drive. And what a mm-hmm. great way of like oh I've swapped your soft light into a hard light drive. You can touch things now. Boom, move on. <laughs> we don't need to get yeah. into the sci-fi kind of no concept. Big deal. It's hard light. You, that makes sense, right? <laughs> great. That's yeah. how sci-fi writing. Timey wimey. <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for today, but do come back next time where we will actually get into the episode that we're supposed to be talking about. A little bit unusual, I guess, in The Red Dwarf because it's such an expanding world. We have a lot more to talk about. And we'll have even more next week, so come back for that. In the meantime, if you'd like to visit us on the social medias, we are at BritcomPod. On the usual things, you can find us if you search for British Sitcom History on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. Similarly, search for British Sitcom History. You will find all these podcasts with video clips included, plus some video-only content that we put up there as well. Do go and check it out, and we will see you next week. <laughs>